You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm David Lipton, Seth's first and probably finest cousin. My cousin David wanted to know more about our grandfather, so he logged into the Ellis Island website. And searched arrivals using the name of my grandfather, Meyer Shostak. I found a 15-year-old who arrived in New York in 1903. That would be consistent with our grandfather, who was born in 1887. The manifest of the ship on which he arrived indicated that Meyer came from Kyrgyzstan, Russia, and his ship departed from Hamburg, Germany. That's about all I learned about our grandfather's origin. An interesting bit of our history there, but still kind of limited. Fortunately, DNA searches can help people pick up where the ancestry trail leaves off. But are there limits to what DNA can tell you about who you are? I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we give you the wide-angle view on science and technology. DNA, it's the gold standard of all identification methods, except when it's not. Don't get us wrong. DNA knows more than your best friend, a lot more about what makes you, you. But using the double helix to identify individuals is not as straightforward as we had once imagined, and the cost of sequencing an individual's genome is still too high for practical widespread use. Meanwhile, modern society requires that you have a means of identification. Does your body have another biological marker that's foolproof? In this episode, the ways in which reading DNA can be misleading and the search for another biometric to tell us reliably who we are. It's identity crisis. You are unique. No surprise there. A blending of all kinds of distinctive and peculiar talents and interests, idiosyncrasies and personality traits, You are a singular individual in the surging sea of humanity. There's no one else exactly like you, but that fact alone won't get you past airport security. Ticket and ID, please. Here's my ticket. My name is Jerry Jarrison, but that doesn't really tell you who I am, you know? To truly know who I am, you have to know stuff like, I like yogurt, and I dabble in Chinese poetry. I invented a recipe for tomato bread. I have a knack for calculus, but prefer geometry. I've never worn corduroy. I own a terrarium. You see, I don't need a plastic identification card to tell me who I am. You're right, you don't, but I do. ID, please. You may resent the idea that a small bit of plastic is a stand-in for your identity. After all, we are more than a name and a series of numbers. Well, that's right. Since the early 1950s, we've also come to think of ourselves as a string of molecules. So kindly refer all your questions about who you are, why you are the way you are, and where you came from to your DNA. Many details about your health history, identity of family members, or deep ancestry are tucked away in your double helix. And as a result, consumers have jumped on the genetic testing bandwagon. According to industry research, more people took genetic ancestry tests in 2017 than all the previous years combined. I knew that I was part English, part German, and part Hungarian. (music) 
Tina Hessman Say wanted to clear up a mystery about her ancestry. I wanted to find out more about my Hungarian heritage. I knew a lot of relatives from the other branches of my family, but none from my Hungarian side. Her personal quest was also professional. A geneticist and a science journalist at Science News, Tina wondered about the consequences of DNA testing going mainstream. She noted that companies do not sequence your complete genome, but translate key short segments called SNPs, leading some scientists to describe the work of the companies as recreational genetics. Tina led her magazine's investigation into just what consumers can expect from DNA ancestry sites. Her team identified five that do primarily genetic testing, 23andMe, Ancestry DNA, Living DNA, Family Tree DNA, and National Geographic's Geno 2.0. Then Tina got busy as a human guinea pig. Most of the companies that I tested with send you a little vial that you spit into. A couple of the companies ask you to take a big Q-tip and swab the inside of your cheek. The results from the company's DNA tests indicated that one of her great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers came from Aberdeen, Scotland, and that helped her get in touch with newly discovered relatives, and she was grateful for that. But how well did they score on telling her what she most wanted to learn? Something about her Hungarian ancestry. I actually didn't learn anything about my Hungarian ancestry. A few tell me that I have Eastern European, Western European, or Balkan heritage, but none of the companies tell me that I have specifically Hungarian ancestry. In her series that appeared in Science News, Tina Hessman Say concluded that consumers relying on genetic testing sites to learn about their family lineage or their deep ancestry may find that the answers come up frustratingly incomplete. For one, the companies don't all promise the same thing. So to learn the most you can about your identity, you need to submit DNA to multiple companies. She told us there is no one-stop genetic shopping. The problem is that each company has a database of their customers, and so they can match you to customers who have tested with them. But they don't know what the DNA is of customers who tested with another company. So the company is only as strong as its database. Yes, that's absolutely true. What surprised you the most about these companies, what they could deliver and and what they couldn't deliver? So I guess what surprised me the most was how imprecise it is, because the first time you get one of these ethnicity makeup reports, you see these very precise numbers right down to the decimal point that will tell you something like you're 20.3% British and you have 1.2% Ashkenazi Jewish heritage. But then if you test with another company, they give you a completely different set of very precise numbers about what is actually in my DNA and my heritage. Did you get the feeling that the precision that they offered you about what percentage you were of whatever background gives the illusion of accuracy to the public? Yes, I think that it's marketed and sold as being very accurate and telling you things that you can't actually know through the DNA. I can think of one commercial, for instance, that says you might find out that your great-grandfather was a fisherman in Donegal, Ireland, and that he had blue eyes like you. That type of information comes from uh, documents and pictures and other things that are simply not coded in your DNA. Now, did you feel that these companies actually made claims that they couldn't fulfill, that they were making false claims about what they could tell people about their ancestry? I think the claims are somewhat exaggerated. For instance, uh, Geno 2.0, the National Genographic Project, they say that they can tell you which historical geniuses you are related to. They base this on Y chromosome or mitochondrial DNA. They tell you who your father's 
lines came from and who your mother's lines came from. But you can only tell going really, really far back in history. So to be clear, when you say historical geniuses, you mean people who were geniuses throughout history, individuals, specific individuals. Yes, exactly. So they told me that I share an ancestor with Abraham Lincoln and Marie Antoinette and Queen Victoria and Benjamin Franklin and Napoleon. But the deal is, is that they're saying our common ancestor probably lived something like 65,000 years ago. And I have absolutely no idea how they know what mitochondrial DNA Abraham Lincoln had. As far as I know, we don't have his DNA. We haven't tested his DNA. So it's an assumption that they're making. So if you go back far enough, you could say that we're all related to everyone in who's who. Absolutely. Because all humans originated in Africa from a relatively small group of people. And so if you go back far enough, we are all related and we all are African. Well, Tina, uh, time for true confessions here. When you heard that you, you might be related to Abraham Lincoln, I think Queen Victoria was another one. Copernicus um, from your article was a, another name that was mentioned. <laughs> did you get a, a little thrill? I mean, did it feel good initially to, to think that you were related to these illustrious people? Uh, Yeah, you know, a little bit. Um, And I thought it was kind of ironic that I was related to both Napoleon and Marie Antoinette. So both sides of the French Revolution there. But uh, Who, who were you most hoping to claim as an ancestor? I was actually most hoping to claim a 5,300 year old ice mummy from the Italian Alps named Utzi as my ancestor. Um, I've written about this mummy uh, quite often, and I sort of feel as though I know him. Before you tell us what you discovered about your relationship to him, I wonder if you could just give us an introduction to this Iceman and and why he's famous. So Utzi was found in the Italian Alps, and he's very famous because He came from a time 5,300 years ago when we don't really know all that much about how people were living in Europe. And he was just perfectly preserved. And people have learned so much about what life was like then from studying his clothes and the contents of his stomach and looking at his DNA. I think he's probably one of the most studied humans ever. I believe it was the company Family Tree DNA that could tell you whether or not you were related to Utsi. And uh, what did you learn? So I didn't really learn whether I was related to him or not. What they were able to tell me is that 47% of my DNA comes from ancient hunter-gatherers who were in Europe before agriculture came in. So I'm I'm European going way, way back. And then I have 41% of ancient farmers that moved in a little bit later, and 12% of these people who they call Middle Age invaders that came from the Eurasian steppes somewhat later and came into Europe. But I don't actually know if I'm related to Utsi. They show a map with various locations of ancient people, but they don't tell you which of those ancient people are your relatives. Well, you wrote in your series that these sites may not be useful for someone who doesn't have a strong British or Irish background. Um, And as you yourself found in searching for your Hungarian ancestry, you found that to be true. But what did you learn about what it's like for African-Americans who try tracing their lineage? And in what ways is that limited? So Africa is a very genetically diverse place. And the companies have only just begun to sample the amount of diversity that is there in Africa. And so they can only tell you sort of roughly which part of Africa you might have relatives from. And the same goes for Asians. 
Most Asians, when they test with these companies, will get a result back saying that they are Chinese, even though they know that their family is from Japan or Thailand or Vietnam or some other part of Asia. And uh, it's just simply that they need to test many more people and in many different localities in both Asia and Africa. One reason why these ancestry tests are limited in the information they can give you is that their databases are not large enough. But is it also that uh, we can't precisely read the genome yet? That there are all these claims made about what we would learn from DNA once we sequence the human genome, but we still don't know how to read it. So we know how to read the A's, T's, C's, and G's, and we're pretty good at saying you have an A instead of a G at this place, but where we're not very good is interpreting that to say, what does that mean for you? So we can't say you have these variants and therefore you will or you won't get cancer or you will or won't exercise or you will or won't lose weight if you eat a low-carb diet. So we're just not that good at interpreting the health consequences of the genome. But for the ancestry testing, it really comes down to who is in the database. And they would pretty much have to sequence everybody or test everybody in order to find all the variation that would pinpoint where you're from. But that's also hard because people don't stay in one place. They move around. They mix and mingle. So let's just say that every person is is a quilt of all of their ancestors. And uh, sometimes you get certain pieces of that quilt that you would share with your relatives and other times you don't. Tina Hessman Say is the senior writer for Science News, and there is a link to her investigative series on ancestry testing on our website, bigpicturescience.org. Well, Tina Hessman Say, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. So I guess part of the point here is that the databases of these companies that they can relate to in trying to analyze where you came from, well, they're limited. I mean, this is a kind of a new industry. And the second thing, of course, is that they're only using these SNPs, tiny fragments of the entire genome. So, of course, that means not all the information that might be able to tell them something about you is actually there. Well, we heard about the limits of DNA as a means of tracing your ancestry. How handy is DNA as a means of identification? Well, in the rare case of a woman whose body contained two sets of DNA, the answer is not very. She went to the blood bank to donate blood, and they did a little test on it to see what type of blood she was, and they were incredibly confused because she had two types of blood. What happens when DNA tests get weird next? It's Identity Crisis on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. In the decades since the DNA molecule was identified as the blueprint that contains genetic information, the blueprint for you, in other words, the double helix has become as intertwined with our personal identities as the two strands of the molecule are with each other. We've come to think of it as you are your DNA. We could reduce identity further and say that you are your nucleotides that make up the DNA molecule, 
or that you are the sugars, the phosphates, and the four bases, cytosine, thymine, adenine, and guanine, which make up the nucleotides. Or you are the specific arrangement of hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, and phosphorus that are the chemical building blocks of everything we listed. DNA allows for precision chemistry. It has become the gold standard as a means of identification. But our understanding about DNA has gotten more complicated since the human genome was sequenced. Scientists are discovering that how the double helix expresses itself and our ability to interpret DNA is more complicated than we thought. For example, you're probably familiar with the fact that false positives can turn up in diagnostic medical tests. But there are misleading facts in other body chemistry situations. We've identified strange cases when people have two sets of DNA. These individuals are referred to as chimeras. Well, what does this mean for identity? If you are your DNA, who are you if your body has two sets of the double helix? And which set of instructions does the body follow? Science journalist Carl Zimmer explores these questions and the ways in which how we talk about heredity and identity have changed. In his book, She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. And it strikes me that while a hundred years ago we might observe that a girl has her mother's laugh, today we might say instead she has her mother's gene for laughter. Although to be clear, that's not saying that there is a gene for laughter. The the language that we use now about heredity is very much uh, infused with genetics in the sense that our parents have these invisible molecules that they pass down to us, you know, when, when we were just a fertilized egg, and that that basically determined everything that there was about us. Genetic determinism is still, unfortunately, very strong and powerful in our culture. And so that really makes um, heredity sort of equivalent to genes. And of course, you know, genes, nobody really talked about genes until about 100 years ago. Uh, and, and so before then, what would people talk about? Well, they didn't really talk about heredity very much the way we do. I mean, it's very hard to go and look for, for that kind of conception of, of heredity. So Maybe they talk about inheritance, what you inherit. Well, they would talk about what you inherit, but they would talk about a farm or a crown, you know, stuff. They would not actually talk about inheriting, say, eye color. Now, we've learned a lot about genes since then, of course. So I'm wondering how modern science now is expanding our notion of what heredity is. So when the first geneticists founded their field, they declared that, you know, the problem of heredity was revolutionized. You know, they really felt that they had found an answer to heredity, and they certainly had. That doesn't necessarily rule out other possible forms of heredity. There are scientists now who argue that as we get to know biology better, we really do need to think more broadly um, and to develop what they call an extended theory of heredity so that it includes the effects of genes. It also can, for some species, include epigenetics, maybe culture. Uh, there can be a lot of different ways in which things get passed down from one generation to the next. You may also have to include the microbiome in that since we are learning now that the viruses and the bacteria that are in us play such a key role to our health and that we each have a unique microbiome and it has its own and it has its own genome and actually many many genomes i mean there are you know each of us has maybe roughly 30 or 40 trillion uh, microbes in our bodies about the same number as as our own cells and there are many many species of bacteria, viruses, fungi, protozoans, and, you know, maybe in the thousands. And so, and then each of those species or strains has its own set of genes. So we're carrying around a whole lot of extra genes with us. And we actually depend on a lot of those genes. A lot of those microbes have genes that allow them to do things that we can't do, to break down certain foods we can't break down, to synthesize vitamins we can't uh, synthesize, to instruct our immune systems in important ways. And uh, we need that for our own well-being. So yeah, so you could argue that you, you need to extend your sense of being an individual to include 
all these microbes you're carrying around with you. Well, I'd like to look at another idea that is challenging our straightforward notion of heredity, and that is that some people have more than one set of DNA. And I know you've been getting a lot of attention for this particular chapter in the book because it runs so counter to our notion of what identity is. Identity is your genome, your DNA. It's just your DNA, and you just have one set of it. But people who have more than one set are called human chimeras. And I wonder if you could give us an example of a human chimera, just exactly what the condition is and how it comes about. So one of the first cases of a human chimera that was documented was a woman in England in the 1950s. She went to the blood bank to donate blood, and uh, they took her blood and they did a little test on it to see what type of blood she was so that they'd be able to file it away. And they were incredibly confused because she had two types of blood which doesn't make any sense at all. Um, We each have one type and that's it. And it's encoded by one gene. And so the people at the blood bank were saying, what's going on here? So they, they got in touch with an expert on blood types and also is a geneticist. And he got interested in this and looked into this woman's case and brought in a bunch of other scientists. And eventually what they figured out was that this woman had cells in her body that had originally started out in her twin brother. So she had a twin brother who had died when he was a boy. So what had happened when they were both in their mother's womb is that you have these two twin embryos developing and you know some of their cells are kind of getting exchanged maybe you know through the placenta and they're sort of taking hold in each other's bodies then they're multiplying and and they're helping to develop this this new person. And so you have this woman who had some of her blood cells being generated by, quote-unquote, her cells and some blood cells being generated by her brother's cells. And so she is a chimera, which refers to the Greek mythological beast that was made up of a lion and a snake and a goat. And it, that was in the 1950s, and today, you know, it's, it's over 60 years later, it's, it's become very clear that there are a lot of chimeras among us. So her, her brother died in utero in— No, he was, he was just a—he was born, but he, he died when he was an infant. He, he died when he was an infant. Wouldn't this be the situation with all twins then, that they're sharing each other's cells and that they would all be chimeras? Uh, no, we don't know why, but there are lots of cases where twins do not end up as chimeras. If you were a chimera and I took some of your blood and we looked at it, we might find cells that were blood cells that were type A and blood cells that were type O. Sure. Okay. I think I can understand that. It's when, if we were to look at you and find out you had two sets of DNA in you, and I wonder if you could explain how that comes about. No, well, it's the same thing. So that brother's cells have a different genome. That brother's cells has his genome in there. Her cells have her genome. They're different genomes. And you could, if you were to do genetic testing and you looked at these cells that came from her own body, you would say, well, these come from two different people. I mean, they're they're pretty closely related, but they're not the same person. And there have actually been cases where this has come up, where forensics has come into play and, and it gets really confusing. There's one case in which a woman was in need of a uh, kidney transplant and her sons got tested to see if they were the right type. And then the hospital came back and said, uh, these, these are not your sons. And she's like, what are you talking about? I I was there. (laughs) I gave birth to them. And they're like, no, look, here's the evidence. And what had happened was that, so her eggs that produced her sons had come from one individual. Her blood had originated from the other individual that make her up as a chimera. They don't match. So the cells in, the DNA in her cells and her blood do not match the DNA in her eggs, which gave rise to her sons. So if a human chimera has two sets of DNA and one of them is producing, and so two kinds of blood are being produced, why don't you have full expression of two sets of, of genes? The, the genes are in different cells. You have two lineages of cells, and each lineage starts out with a different genome inside of it. 
And so then you just, those cells multiply, 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 and you can imagine, let's imagine that somebody was 25% cells from person A and 75% cells from person B. You know, the A cells would have all the same DNA in them. The B cells would have their own DNA in them. And the, you stop as though, okay, that makes sense. But there is one other follow-up, which is what if the instructions conflict? Mm-hmm. So what if one carries the instructions for blue eyes and one for brown eyes? That's just a simple example. But what if one carries the instructions for a neurological disease and the other one doesn't? Or We could go on and on. How does the body incorporate two sets of instructions? Apparently it does so pretty well because these chimeras are perfectly healthy. And and, and actually um, another source of being a chimera is, is a very common one, which is women having children. So if a woman gets pregnant, she has this embryo, which has a, a genetically distinct you know, genome in it, and the cells from the embryo are going to get shed, and some of them are going to end up in her bloodstream. And that just happens with every pregnancy. Um, in some cases, after the child is born, some of those fetal cells endure. They stay inside of her body. And not only that, but they start to spread around and actually go into her tissues, her brain, uh, her skin, her thyroid gland. And there they start to divide because they're embryonic cells. They have this capacity to to divide and to take on, you know, different characteristics to become a neuron or to become a muscle cell. And so there are lots of women who are chimeras due to being mothers. And this kind of chimerism is called microchimerism because um, you're not like sort of half and a half the way you could be if there was a twin involved. Well, in the example, the earlier example, the first one that you gave where the woman had some of her twins blood cells. How does a situation like that challenge our notion of identity? So is she is she she <laughs> she her brother? Is her brother still living in some ways because some of his cells are alive even though he's passed away? Yeah, so I think that the case of chimeras really shows how we have to have a kind of a a broader concept of what it means to be an individual, something beyond just some particular DNA sequence. You know, I mean, you are not your genome. Um, you are more than that. You know, the genome is an important part of who you are, but it's perfectly easy for a human being to be the product of two genomes. And, and that person is no less of a person than anybody else. You know, and likewise, you know, identical twins arise from a single genome, but, you know, we don't deny their individuality. We don't say that they're each half a person. Um, They're complete individuals as well. So I think uh, when we think of individuals, we need to think of people in their full existence. Carl Zimmer, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Carl Zimmer is a science writer, a columnist for the New York Times, and the author of She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. Okay, our reading of DNA is fallible, but nonetheless, modern society has a need for a quick and accurate biological means of identification. So if not DNA, well then what? Welcome to the world of biometrics. We need biometrics for two elements. One is increased security and the other is increased convenience in our lives and business. Next, find out how biometrics were used to ensure democratic results in a recent African election. It's Identity Crisis on Big Picture Science.
DNA. The genetic code is an impressive database of information about you and why you ended up with blue eyes or a predisposition to diabetes. Your double helix can also help you trace your ancestry, but as we've heard, in that area, the full promise of reading DNA is yet to be realized. However, the demands of modern living require a cheap and reliable means of identification that can be scaled up for widespread use. That is, a biological trait that will single you out from the hordes, something that is you, you, nobody else but you. Well, scientists have come up with a few traits, including one that might give you away at a distance. There is the thought that there are people you can recognize because they have a very distinct pattern in how they walk. Bonjour, madame. Hello. Can I see your ID, please? There's no need for frivolous ID cards. My persona is captured in my unique manner of walking. Just watch as I cross the floor thusly. See how I walk with a limp? Yes. Yes, very nice. Are you gazing upon my loping stride? Oh, my. That is something. Look, it gives me away. Indeed, it is unmistakable. But for you to join the tour of the cathedral, Mr. Quasimodo, I'll still need your ID card. Okay, even if you always recognize the purposeful strides of your Aunt Mary or the limping lope of characters from French Romantic literature, how you walk isn't the most practical of biological identifiers, what scientists call biometrics. But speaking of Notre Dame... Hello, I am Kevin Boyer at the University of Notre Dame. I am a professor of computer science and engineering here. Biometrics are something that we measure about a person in order to verify their identity. They may be physical, so the appearance of your face or of your ear, the texture of your iris, your fingerprint, your DNA. The other category would be behavioral. It might be how you write your signature. It might be how you walk. It might be how you use your cell phone. One physical identifier is becoming kind of an established technology, the irises of your eye. Some airports use iris scans. But the largest application for this technology is in India for its national ID program. Get it? I-D? But in November 2017, a first-ever use of iris scans in the independent nation of Somaliland. There were news headlines at the time about Somaliland being the first in the world to use iris scans to construct a voter registration list guaranteed to have only one registration per person. As reported on the program Africa News... The election was, however, technologically friendly as they became the first country in Africa and the first in the world to use the iris recognition-based biometric voting system. It's in the Horn of Africa. This is a part of the world which is dangerous and maybe somewhat lawless. Uh, can be a breeding ground for extremist groups. So when the chance presented itself, I was happy for my lab to do a small part to help Somaliland increase confidence in their democratic process. Dr. Boyer and his team helped develop the iris scan system at the request of the Somaliland election officials. What they asked us to do was a proof of concept for the technology. In their 2010 election, they had constructed a voting registration list with biometrics using fingerprint and face. But after the election and in the analysis, they decided that that voter registration list had 15, 20 percent of the entries duplicates, that is, people with multiple entries in the list so they could vote multiple times. And they contacted us about the possibility of using iris scans in order to have a voter registration list that would be cleaner and have fewer duplicates in it. Now, I think everybody understands what it's like to show up at a polling place and, you know, offer your driver's license or some other photo ID to prove uh, who you are. Give me an idea of what it would have been like in Somaliland to go vote. Well, the part that would be different would actually happen before the voting. You would show up at a voter registration office or a voter registration drive. And in this particular instance, you would use a binoculars-looking pair of cameras to take images of both your eyes. Uh, In those images, there would be a picture of your iris, and that's the part of your eye that opens and closes to make your pupil larger or smaller. It's also the part of your eye that contains melanin, which determines the color of your eyes. The iris images for each voter registration would then be matched against the images for every other voter registration. And the reason to do this is to detect instances where one person has submitted multiple registrations. We outlined an approach for Somaliland in which we believe they could use iris scans 
to detect over 90% of the fraud attempts and at the same time have only about a one in one billion chance of saying that there was a fraud attempt when there was not. And from that point on, the process in Somaliland would probably seem an awful lot like the process here in the USA, except everyone in Somaliland would have a biometric-enabled, government-issued photo ID. Tell, tell me how iris scans work. I mean, they look at the iris, obviously, and anybody who's looked at their iris up close, um, maybe when you're putting in your contacts or something, they know they have these really weird patterns on them. What's the deal? All patterns are different? Well, within the field of iris recognition, the theory, which has sort of proved out an experiment to date, is that each iris is different. So my two irises, even though they might look alike if you held the light up and stared at them very carefully, have a different iris code from each other. They're just as different as my iris is to yours. So each iris is independent. A person is carrying around two different ways of identifying themselves or two independent ways of identifying themselves. An identical twins' irises, all four, would be different, even if they might look alike to a person. And the scanners, they don't just look in the visible light. They also look in the near-infrared, I understand. Uh, why do they do this? Is the reflection of uh, the material in, the, in your iris different in the infrared than in the visible? Exactly. In, in visible light, the melanin that gives me very dark eyes and a lower melanin content would allow other people to have blue eyes or green eyes and let you see the texture more easily. In visible light, you would have a very hard time doing iris recognition with a picture of my eye. In near-infrared, in essence, we all have light green eyes. You can see the iris texture really well in all people's eyes. It turns out most of the world has really dark eyes. So to do commercially viable large-scale iris recognition, you really need to use near-infrared illumination. So other than this kind of an obvious application, and maybe this is the kind of thing that makes biomarkers interesting. You know, what is it about being able to identify somebody with this kind of technology that's so interesting? I mean, you could just, you know, just look at their driver's license. I mean. <laughs> well, well, you could, but driver's licenses can be fooled. I think the burst of biometrics being used everywhere is probably going to come when we give people more convenience along with a certain degree of security and doing things in their everyday life. Uh, imagine that you're walking down the street you're holding your baby and the baby's asleep, but you walk by your favorite coffee shop and you really want a cup of coffee, but even more, you don't want to wake up the baby. So you have this problem of how do I get the cup of coffee with one hand? Well, imagine that you could put your thumbprint down to pay without having to get out a credit card or money. That type of convenience in doing a simple daily transaction might be something that you really, really like. And there's a startup called Yambu that's offering this kind of service in the Washington, D.C. area now. They're just one of a number of those. Uh, another example, we used to use a key to start our car. Now we have to have the key fob in our pocket or purse when we get in the car to start it. But what if we could do away with the key fob? We've registered with the car. We get in the car. It takes a picture of our face or our iris or our thumbprint and allows us to start up the car. So I think biometrics really takes off for large-scale commercial technology as it begins to offer individual persons a combination of convenience and security in their daily life. And, and that's really key, isn't it? Because you could say, well, maybe your fingerprints would be good enough to start your car, right? I mean, they're, they're also individual. Or let that aside, what about DNA? I'll, I'll just have the car sequence my DNA while I sit here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then it'll know it's really the owner of the car sitting here. I mean, obviously, the fact that you can do it quickly is one of the attractions of iris scans. Yes. It has to be instantaneous, and it has to be such a low cost that you can almost ignore the cost in an individual transaction. DNA is not there yet. Uh, iris, face, uh, fingerprint, at, at least for one or two fingers, is that quick and that cheap. Well, okay, so it has to be efficacious. It sounds like a drug. It has to be efficacious. In other words, it's, it's got to really uniquely identify this person over here. It's got to be fast. It's got to be inexpensive. Give me some other biomarkers that might qualify. Well, the big four or three and a half would be face, fingerprint, iris, and probably voice. Uh, voice having special applications, perhaps. Uh, the one that's considered to be very, very strong, but much more expensive and time-consuming would be DNA, 
as a biometrics researcher, I go to the annual conferences. I'm the editor of the new transactions on biometrics. And the academic research community is always looking for novel biometrics. So we might study things like ear shape. We might study things like gait. We might study things like the pattern of how you use your cell phone. That is, how, how are your swipes done, your taps done on the phone? What apps do you use? Can we tell that it's you using your phone while you're using your phone without doing anything explicit or someone else using your phone. Uh, so that's actually a hot topic nowadays. Um, there are always novel ideas popping up using your EKG for your heart rate, using your EEG for your brain waves. I've seen even something, believe it or not, using your tongue print by analogy to the fingerprint to identify you. That one I agree is novel, but I'm not sure what the application is. <laughs> well, I, I can't imagine that walking gait would be a useful biometric in any transaction. I mean, I can't imagine the clerk, you want to vote in this election? Well, just walk across the room for me so I can ID you. That doesn't sound terribly practical. Everyone has had the experience of seeing someone down at the end of the hallway or across a large yard where you couldn't really see their face, but you could tell from how they were walking that that was probably someone you were looking for. And so you feel that you can do that. Realistically, you can't identify everyone from their gait with the level of accuracy that you can with fingerprint, face, or iris. So it's not going to replace that sort of thing. But it might be a weaker biometric that's used in special cases for special purposes. Now, there's another use for biomarker technology that uh, goes beyond simply identifying or verifying someone, and that is to evaluate something about their state of mind or their health. Facial recognition apparently can do this. It can give some insight into our emotional or even physical health. How does that work? Well, there's a, a phrase called affective computing that was coined by Roz Picard, a colleague of mine at MIT Media Lab a couple decades ago. And she was the one who sort of popularized the idea that we can do analysis of your facial image to determine your emotional state. And she was originally looking at it for how do we get the computer to interact with the person better by understanding the person's emotional state. So if you can tell that I'm frustrated, maybe you go slower and you repeat yourself more often and you explain in more detail how I use the computer. Uh, the field of effective computing has become enormous uh, and has probably given rise to this, this additional or, or broader layer of research where we're really looking at mental and physical health state of the user from analyzing their facial image. We wouldn't be surprised that we can talk about determining if you have red eyes or if your eyelids are drooping more than normal. So maybe we can tell that you're, you're tired and stressed. Uh, it might be surprising to some people to find out that we can actually get your pulse rate from the color video feed of your face. Uh, and through using different sorts of things like how pale the skin is, how red the eyes are, the pulse rate, the drooping eyelids, we might be able to make some sort of diagnosis about some medical states. Does this mean that in the future I, I can get my uh, yearly physical via Skype? <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm not sure I would go that far, but certainly if you are operating a truck, uh, flying a plane, operating a piece of heavy machinery, there might be a camera aimed at you that's going to uh, alert you if you're getting drowsy or getting distracted, right? That, that's a very real application that could happen in the near term. Well, finally then, Kevin, we've gotten used to thinking that DNA is the unique identifier for us as individuals. We are our DNA. And perhaps we'll replace that with uh, we are our iris patterns. It sounds like kind of a reductionist way of identifying ourselves, however. Well, I think we have to start by realizing that, that the concept of identity isn't a single concept. It's, a, it's multiple concepts, or the word identity, the phrase identity, is used commonly with different levels of meaning without us really realizing that we're doing it. So it's totally natural in everyday conversation, yet at the same time seems totally inconsistent for me to say, I am Kevin Boyer every time I use my passport to cross the border, and also to say, I'm not the same person that I was five years ago, and also to say, I'm not myself today with the implication that I will be myself again tomorrow. Our identity is something that in one sense we can carry with us consistently throughout our life. In another sense, it's a statement about who we feel we are at a particular point in our life. 
And in still another sense, it's something that we might recognize that we make temporary departures from. So traditional biometrics, uh, face recognition and iris recognition and fingerprint, are good for the first of those, this definition of identity that we carry with us throughout our life. The more expansive concept of biometrics where we monitor physical and mental health might be applicable to the I am not myself today concept of identity. But you're right. In general, if we know someone only through biometric analysis of their identity, we don't really have a sense of who they are as a person. And I would join you in saying that life is more than just computers and algorithms, and identity is more than just biometrics. It's great to hear that from a professor of computer science. Kevin Boyer, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you. It was great to speak with you today. I hope to talk to you again in the future. Kevin Boyer is a professor of computer science and engineering at the University of Notre Dame. Okay, so what we've heard in the show is that DNA is still the best tool to learn who we are and from whom we've come. But we've also heard that it's limited. Uh, there are many questions we may have about our ancestry that we can't answer right now. And there are complications that arise with DNA that we're just learning about, such as the example of chimeras. So it's not straightforward. You know, there's also the practical application of all this. We want something that will tell us that we're really who we say we are. And so we've got other kinds of biometrics that people are looking into, irises. But as a practical matter, DNA would be better. And honestly, I think that within 25 years, we're going to be able to sequence DNA so quickly, you can use it at the checkout line. Well, thanks to those who helped produce Big Picture Science. They know who they are, but we'll say their names anyway. Senior producer Gary Niederhoff and operations manager Barbara Vance. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to a Big Picture Science episode called Identity Crisis. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science episodes, well, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you never want to miss an episode, subscribe to BiPiSci on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. Hello, ID please. Oh, it's you, the terrarium owner who's never worn corduroy. Did you have an actual form of ID this time? Sure do. Check out my tongue. See? What? See? No. The bumps and ridges are unique. Look, look. You know what? Going through. You're good. Next. <laughs>